Um, I'm very grateful to the Lumen Christie Institute for inviting me here. Um, the weather has cheered up upon my arrival in the Divinity School. It took a turn for the worse upon my arrival in Chicago. I think a thunderstorm greeted me uh, yesterday evening. This is not, I expect, an omen. But anyway, I'm delighted to be here and thanks for the invitation. In this lecture, <coughs> I propose to do a contentious, though really rather straightforward, thing. By way of compressing the more elaborated argument of the book which Bernie just mentioned, Faith, Reason and the Existence of God, I'll put the case for the defense of a decree of the First Vatican Council of 1870 to 1872. I wrote the book in the first place because I was puzzled by that decree's very unconditional stand in support of reason's power to know God. For, rather alarmingly, you'll perhaps think, <clears throat> it declares all those to be anathematized who deny, I quote, that the one true God, our creator and Lord, can be known with certainty from the things that have been made by the natural power of reason, end of quote. As I say, it was that decree that got the book going because I wondered what Thomas Aquinas would make of it, and it's where this paper starts too. I am, however, going to speak to you today more about reason in Thomas Aquinas and less than I should about faith. So I'm, might I begin by taking a step back from the immediate issues there and offer a generalization about reason by way of appeal to a medieval philosophical truism. The truism is one which you find Thomas Aquinas sometimes appealing to, though in fact he and others got it from their Latin translations of Aristotle's Peri Hermonias and Metaphysics. Eadem est scientia oppositorum, Aristotle says. One and the same is the knowledge of opposites. Now, you might paraphrase one implication of this truism by saying that you can get worthwhile disagreements going only where there is agreed common ground to contest. Where you don't agree or can't as to what you're disagreeing about, where there is no eadem scientia, you have but heterogeneity, or as the medievals called it, a diversitas, you get cross-purposes, not genuine disagreement, as we can genuinely disagree about whether this object or that is red or green, but are only at cross-purposes if you say it's green, and I say, no, it isn't, it's six foot long. Or, to take a more medieval example, I suppose medieval theologians thought of heretics, whether of the Christian variety, or Muslim or Jewish, as belonging to a common family of disagreement. Since with them you knew what you were disagreeing about, say, about the oneness of God and the Trinity. For then, the falling out was within the family, as it were, whereas they would have been mostly simply puzzled by Buddhists, hardly knowing where to start with them. Buddhists being challengingly devout, but worshipping no god at all. That said, let me put in very blunt terms the first of two propositions subsidiary to this defense of the Vatican decree that I have in mind to explain today. And this first proposition is about reason in what I shall call its minimal sense. My purpose, and I do confess the tactics are, are a bit manipulative, is simply to ask you whether you'd agree or disagree with Thomas about reason, 
and thereby to entice you all, either way, into agreeing with him about where lies the common territory of our agreement or disagreement, as the case may be. <coughs> the eadem sciencia, as it were. And then I shall suggest that we have agreed on this minimal sense of reason, one way or the other. But either you won't disagree with Thomas about reason, in which case there will be, you will be there in agreement with him in one move, or else we will have found some territory common between us all, a shared territory of disagreement, and I shall say, in finding just that common territory, we show that we agree with Thomas Aquinas about what reason is and about its place within our common enterprise. <coughs> it's, <coughs> it's about how to get resolvable disagreements going for eadem est scientia oppositorum. How about that then? I mean, that reason is for us all a common currency of the exchange of disagreements. Agreed? No? Then tell me, how do you propose to disagree with Thomas? And what account of the rules of agreement and disagreement do you propose? Only answer that, and we'll, we'll have agreed in two moves. For you will at least have agreed on what it is to assert and deny, componendo et dividendo, as he puts it, and about what counts as a resolvable disagreement. Now one, though only one such means of settling disagreements, is proof. If we can get that far, then we might be able to take one further step. If we can agree that it is possible to settle disagreements about the existence of God by those means of proof, or by means of their demonstrable failure, then we will have agreed with Thomas about reason in this minimal sense. But even if you disagree with him about that, then reason is what you use in the conduct of just that disagreement. That is, reason in this, its minimal sense. Oh, and I don't really need to tell, you don't really need to tell me, rather, that in this minimal sense, reason is a cold and heartless thing. And, it's minimal, and in its minimal sense, it gets you nowhere by way of substantive truths. It's just that it's called logic. An icy pool of thought technology having to do with those other cold and heartless things like inference and evidence and proof. But let's for the moment take a step into the icy pool and offer a provocation to some theologians who might want to disagree with my more substantive proposition about reason and faith in the following way. The decree of the First Vatican Council tells us that it is a matter of faith that the existence of God is demonstrable by reason alone. And I think Thomas agrees with that, and that moreover he takes that other step. For I think he would interpret that, I quote, knowing with certainty, in this case as meaning demonstrable by proof, that is, by valid inference from true premises. But even though theologians today are much better disposed towards Thomas than they used to be, there's hardly one among them, of whatever theological tradition, who thinks he's right on that score, preferring on the whole the proposition that on the contrary, it's essential to the defense of faith that the existence of God is shown to be rationally indemonstrable, beyond proof, one way or the other. There are all sorts of grounds offered, Kantian and non-Kantian, 
for the scepticism of today's theologians concerning Thomas's optimistic hopes for what Kant called speculative reason. But one of the most commonly put, and as casually as commonly, is neo-Pascalian. You still hear it said that even if it were philosophically possible, it's simply no use of theologians trying to prove the existence of God on rational grounds, because any God you could prove the existence of by purely rational means would be, as Pascal so famously put it, a God of the philosophers. And a God of the philosophers could not be the same God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, hearing this sort of talk from a paid-up Barthian theologian would not be very surprising. More surprising is to get a reading of Thomas himself, such as that of the Dominican theologian Fergus Kerr, according to whom, even if a rational proof of God's existence could be had, and he implies that Thomas isn't really serious in supposing that it can be, the God exists of the philosopher, and these are his words, could not mean the same as the God exists of Christian faith. From which he seems to think that it follows that rational proof of God, even if successful, wouldn't get you to the same God as the God of Christian faith. But this appears to be a non sequitur and one of Kerr's. What's certain is that it's not one of Thomas's. For I cannot see Thomas being much disconcerted by what Kerr puts to him by way of the non-equivalence of the divine names. Thomas knows perfectly well that the descriptions under which he thinks God's existence is proved, prime mover, first cause, necessary being, and so, and so forth, do not mean the same as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After all, he knows that prime mover, first cause, necessary being, don't mean the same even as one another. But I think he would have been upset to know of this being considered an objection, as if he himself ent entertains it seriously. Just because two descriptions do not mean the same, it doesn't follow that they're not descriptions of the same identical thing. Consider, the square of one and the square root of one do not mean the same, though, <coughs> though the value both formulae yield is in either case one. And I do not recall any mathematicians being caused thereby to think that there are two numbers one that couldn't mean the same because the one is derived by squaring and the other by square rooting. Or, as John Haldane has put it, just because blockage in the system and a small piece of masonry do not mean the same, does not follow that what's blocking the system isn't a small piece of masonry. And I sincerely hope that my plumber won't be troubled by Kerr's scruples into believing that what's blocking the system couldn't be a small piece of masonry because they don't mean the same. Just so here, you would of course have to show that the necessary being known by reason, is the same God as the cause and object of Trinitarian faith. But then Thomas does put in some 149 articles of close argument between the famous five ways and the opening of his discussion of the Trinity, purporting to show just that. When Thomas says at the end of each of his proofs, et hoc omnes dicunt deum, this should be translated not as and this is how all people talk about God, because manifestly they don't commonly talk about God as prime mover or necessary being or any such thing, and you shouldn't imagine Thomas not knowing that. Nor even as, 
This is what all people mean when they talk about God, because they don't have any such meaning in mind when they make the sign of the cross, and Thomas knows that too. The phrase is more properly translated as, and this is the same God as the one all people speak of, for example, when they pray or make the sign of the cross or whatever. And though, of course, that is a proposition which itself needs a great deal of argument which you could dispute, there's no good reason for the theologians to take offence in principle, at any rate, not on Pascal's grounds. What is probably more disconcerting than Kerr's anxieties is the problematic claim that Thomas theologically and the Vatican Council dogmatically appear to be staking for faith's relation... <coughs> sorry, is the problematic claim that Thomas appears to be staking for faith's relation to the possibilities of reason. For that claim appears to be <coughs> that it is a matter of faith that reason can know God. And such a claim would seem to be simultaneously both outrageously overbearing in its claims to dictate to the philosophers and at the same time riskily self-undermining. It's a provocation to the philosophers by appearing to tell them what they can and can't do <coughs> and on non-philosophical grounds. But the theologians also would have cause to worry about the decree because it would appear to place faith in thrall to what must in principle be a contestable philosophical proposition. I take it that a proposition's being philosophical would seem to guarantee its contestability. For were the philosophers to succeed in showing that reason could not in principle show the existence of God, then any account of faith which entailed that it could do so would fall with the success of the philosopher's counter-arguments. Since if what a proposition entails is refutable, then the proposition which entails it is thereby refutable. But I don't think either fear is in fact justified. The situation here, in point of the decree's coherence, is somewhat similar to another, just as hotly disputed proposition, which in a manner analogous connects matters of faith with contingent secular fact. Suppose you maintain, as Thomas does, though I gather most academic theologians today do not, that faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ entails his bodily resurrection, and that bodily resurrection entails that one and the same body which hung on the cross is now at the right hand of the Father. Then you claim to know on grounds of faith that as a matter of contingent fact, there are not going to be any preserved bones of Jesus' dead body lying somewhere to be discovered in the desert of Palestine. In short, you know that by early on the third day, the tomb was empty. But the tomb's being empty or not remains a straightforward matter of observational and so fallible fact, even if its being empty is entailed on grounds of faith in the resurrection. There's a general but simple point in logic at stake here. At stake here. Of course, if a proposition is true, then necessarily factual claims to the contrary are false. So necessarily, if it is true that Jesus' body was raised from the dead, then the tomb was empty. But that necessarily, of faith's entailment, does not make the tomb's being empty any less an empirical factual truth. As Thomas himself says, so long as the sentence, Socrates is sitting, is true, then necessarily, Socrates is sitting. But it does not follow from this that Socrates sitting is necessary. It remains a perfectly contingent matter of fact. After all, he just has to stand up and walk away 
and the proposition Socrates is sitting becomes false. And the position in point of logic of the resurrection is in like case. Of necessity, if you believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection, then you know that, as a matter of fact, the tomb was empty. It does not follow that the tomb's being empty is a necessary truth. Hence, had it not been empty, had Jesus' body been there, or had it been spirited away by the disciples and hidden elsewhere, then belief in the resurrection of Jesus would have become unsustainable. Logically, the counterfactual conditional remains available, even if actually it is ruled out by the truth of faith. Now, I can see why some theologians would worry about faiths being tied in with this historically contingent entailment if it were being maintained that the meaning of the resurrection faith is reducible to the factual consequence it entails. If, as David Jenkins, the Bishop of Durham, used to put it, it then would follow that belief in the resurrection amounted to nothing more than a story about a bag of bones. But I don't think I understand what's going on when I hear Christian theologians worrying in this sort of way. After all, every time they recite their creed, they declare what in faith they believe must be true. And among the truths the creed declares to be of faith are some obviously plain historical facts. Namely, that Jesus was, I quote, crucified, he died and was buried. <coughs> End of quote. If those <coughs> contingent historical assertions were not true, all Christian faith would be in vain. So says the creed. I therefore cannot see why theologians should want, want to box themselves into so conceptually tight a corner as they do if they insist that were your faith to entail factual consequences, its significance would be reduced to those consequences. Nothing of the sort follows, except, I suppose, for a certain kind of logical positivist who collapses meaning into verification. You can, with perfect consistency, say, first, that the resurrection faith depends upon a certain historical facts being the case, namely that the tomb was empty, and second, that faith in the resurrection could not consist in that facts being the case. For the hypothetical proposition, if belief in the resurrection of Jesus is true, then the tomb was empty, is not, of course, convertible with the proposition, if the tomb is empty, then belief in the resurrection is true. Of course, then, <coughs> resurrection faith consists in more than belief in a mere historical fact. But that does not mean that its truth does not entail one. So, I concede that these matters merely of logic say nothing at all of interest about that resurrection faith itself. But then, I didn't intend to be interesting about the resurrection, but only to illustrate a parallel point, and equally one in mere logic, about faith's authority and reason's autonomy. Just as to say, <coughs> excuse me, just as to say that belief in the resurrection of Jesus entails a certain empirical facts being true, without robbing that fact of its empirical contingent character, so to say that faith's authority dictates that a certain philosoph philosophical proposition is true, is neither to rob faith of its certainty, by virtue of thus linking it into a contestable truth claim, nor is that linkage to reduce faith, faith to that proposition. So the Vatican decree does nothing to rob reason of its autonomy in its own sphere, nor faith in its. On the contrary, Faith's certainty concedes that autonomy to reason. For if by faith we know that reason is capable of knowing God, 
then it would seem to follow that reason can by itself know that it is capable of knowing God, and that it may be able to do so by its characteristic method of proof. Of course, whether the philosopher can indeed prove the existence of God would remain to be shown philosophically. So all the work of reason remains to be done by reason itself, of its own resources, and none of it is done for it by faith. Now, sketchy enough as it is, that is as much as I will say for the moment by way of clearing the ground for the first of those two subsidiary propositions about reason. And I'll pass on to the second. For there is, of course, more to reason on Thomas's account than that minimal conception, merely of logic. <clears throat> A richer, more complex conception of it, I venture to say, than pretty well any which has been available to us among the theologians and the philosophers since his time. But it is also one without which it is impossible to understand his case for the possibility of a, uh, of a rational proof of God. And I want now to suggest that if we're to recapture something of what he has to offer here, we could do well to start elsewhere than among the theologians of our times, and would do better to look specifically among the arts but especially to poetry and to music. But you'll have to forgive me if in doing so I give you little more than the bones of an argument or perhaps just the sinews of a thought which link up the structure of Thomas's theology. First, let's dispose of an instinctive, though often unarticulated, prejudice about reason which can get in the way of our reading Thomas on the subject properly. There are theologians who just don't seem to like reason very much. It seems so unfriendly to feeling, for a start, and to the rich complexity of life more generally. And one has to concede that reason reduced to the minimal sense, as formal ratiocination, is a dull, flat, and thus far not very profitable thing. And you might correspondingly be uninspired, as many are, by how far Thomas's so-called essential definition of a human being as rational animal, limps so laggardly behind the living, complex, vibrant, carnal reality of any actual human being. But while it's true that Thomas is no enemy of reason in that narrow sense of reasoning, he is equally clear that you cannot get the role of reason in theology right, even in that limited employment of it, which is ratiocination, until you place it within a far wider understanding of what it is for a human being to be a rational animal than any which might be deduced exclusively from a rationality so minimally conceived. Now, though Thomas doesn't quite put it this way himself, I want to suggest that you get the hang of the full-blooded thing that he means by rational animal if you can see how it is that of all the activities in which human beings engage, it is music-making which best exemplifies how, for him, animals are rational, that is to say, human. And I'll say a few things by way of explanation of that first. And then I'll say that you can see why this should be so in his theology of the Eucharist. There you can grasp a sort of ideal type of what rationality means to Thomas Aquinas and how it is that reason, understood in that sense in which music is typically rational, has a sort of Eucharistic, or perhaps more broadly, a sacramental shape, epistemologically speaking. And then I'll say that a proof of the existence of God is just a case of reason in its minimal expression as ratiocination, 
fulfilling itself in the same sort of epistemological shape that music and the Eucharist, and the Eucharist have. But all of them, poetry, music and proof, belong with what Thomas means by reason in its most general and fundamental sense, the maximal sense, as I'll call it. Now, to understand this maximal sense, the first step is to begin where Thomas himself does, placing us humans where we belong in the big scheme of things. That is to say, with the proposition that we humans are generically animals. We are, as he says in the De Entia all the way through, not just partly, animals. Therefore, whatever we humans do, we do as an animal does it. If we love, we love as an animal does. And if my cat can't reciprocate on equal terms the affection I bestow upon it, this is not because she is an animal and I'm not, it's because I am and she is not a rational animal. If we suffer, we suffer as an animal does. If I know and love God, then I know and love God as only an animal can. And if my cat cannot know and love God, this again is not because my cat is an animal and I'm not, but because the cat is a different sort of animal from me. So, from one point of view, my animality contrasts with the brute animals in that mine is rational and the brute's is not. As it were, rationality is the form of our animality. But for, my, for, but for Thomas, my rationality places my nature in another point of contrast, namely with angels. But it is only an animal that can be rational, and a rational animal is rational all the way through, not partly rational, partly angelic. Angels know many more things than humans do, but are not rational at all. God knows everything knowable, but not as humans do, not rationally. When it comes to how to know things, animals and only animals do it by the rational means of deliberation. Angels do not know by deliberating, neither does God. Only a certain kind of animal can deliberate. And only animals have bodies to speak with. And that, as one of Thomas's earliest followers, Dante Alighieri, says, is what it is to be human, a speaking animal. Or as he puts it somewhat more negatively sometimes, all forms of failure to be human are in some way, or show up in some way, in failures of language. Step two. Another way of placing human beings is to say that only rational animals have meaningful bodies, bodies which bear and transact meanings, bodies which speak. If you have a problem with my saying this, think about how a smile speaks. And since I happen to have mentioned Dante already, think of how Beatrice's smiles and frowns and withholdings of smiles speak to him. Or just consider how a man may smile and smile and be a villain. His smile saying one thing, his villainy another. Or think of that complexity of communication contained in that other famously ironic remark act which speaks, the kiss of Judas, that greeting of friends whereby he betrays Jesus. Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss, says Jesus, protesting at a cruel irony? If you have a problem with how a smile or a kiss or a laugh 
can speak, thinking them somehow to be more material than formal language. Do not be misled, for you will not find it any easier to explain how formal speech speaks, conveys meaning. For how less material than gestures are written squiggles bearing meaning? How are the vibrations of the larynx any less material than the rictus of the lips, either being expressive sometimes of the most profound thoughts? You may have a general problem about how meanings get into matter at all, but if that is so, your problem about meaning and formal language is no more nor less difficult of solution than how it is that a smile or a kiss or a laugh can be a bearer of ironies. All are bits of body which say things. Explain the one if you can, but only by such means as explain both. Such at any rate seems to be the view of Thomas Aquinas. You'll find it all in his commentary on Aristotle's De Anima and elsewhere. A rational animal is a meaning-bearing, a sign-conveying lump of organized sensuous matter, and we call those human bits of matter bodies because they're matter alive with that form of life, Thomas calls it soul, which consists in the transactions of meaning. Rational animals are alive precisely as communicating, and the quality of their lives is in the quality of their communicatings as Dante said. A rational animal is speaking matter, it is a body in its character as language. So, back to language, and to help us out there, back to Judas's kiss. You can grasp the terrible irony of that kiss because you grasp how its twofold meanings contradict one another. What Judas's kiss says as conventional bodily sign, the greeting of friends, is subverted by what is said by his doing it, betraying his saviour and lord. It's not, of course, a unique case. Think of the performatively contradictory behaviour of the parent who smacks their child in order to teach it not to solve problems by means of violence. I smack to correct a misbehaviour, but the same smack itself unsays the correction. So that's step two. Utterances perform something, we say, or as we might add, in medieval Eucharistic language, signs effect, as to say the words I promise is, in certain circumstances, to promise. But also, performances utter. That is to say, the very materiality of the signifier as enacted can bear its own meaning. That is part of what is meant by saying that humans are rational in Thomas's sense, namely, that human, beings, human bodies signify, or rather, some matter is a human body, precisely if it signifies. You might say that for him, brute animal bodies signal things, but don't signify. Angels don't have bodies, and so, as Dante says, if they transact meanings, it is not by means of language that they do so, which is the same as to say that they're not rational. <clears throat> to take step three, consider poetry. Herbert McCabe once said, I quote, that poetry is language trying to become bodily experience. End of quote. And that seems right, except for the trying to be. Poetic meanings work through a complex set of transactions between what is conveyed by the meaning of the words considered as formal speech 
and what is conveyed by the signifier in its material physical character as shape on the page sometimes, or more usually as sound uttered. Think of the difference inflection makes between saying Emma Kirkby is not just a pretty voice and Emma Kirkby is not just a pretty voice. Here is the words music, the inflection, which delivers the difference in meaning, not the words simply as verbal signs, for they are in either case identical. Poetry is the meal made of such material tonal devices in a sort of contrapuntal interweaving of verbal and tonal meanings. As Oliver Davis once put it, in poetry, the signifier itself is foregrounded, so that the work of meaning is carried not alone by the formal meanings of the words, but also by that meaning which is conveyed by the material, aural qualities of the speech acts themselves, the rhythmic speech patterns, assonance, inflection, and so forth, these two in their contrapuntal interplay. That is poetry being the body. <clears throat> it doesn't have to try to be one. In fact, it might have been better if Herbert had said that it is music that poetry is trying to be. Which is to the point. For then McCabe added, I quote, and music is bodily experience trying to be language, end of quote. Which again seems right, except for the trying to be. For if in poetry there is a contrapuntal weaving of the verbally signified with the signifier itself, in whose materiality of being uttered there is also an utterance. In music, the signifier in its materiality is so absolutely foregrounded that everything is reduced to it, with nothing left to it in the character of verbal language at all. For music is all rhythm and pitch and melody and harmony and dissonance. To see the difference between the verbal and the musical, therefore, think of this. When I say, the cat is on the mat, you can attend to the meaning exclusively so that the materiality of the sound disappears, absorbed entirely into the meaning. You hear the sounds as something said, as semantic episodes. Or you can, if you try hard enough, attend to the mere noise of the utterance, the meaning disappearing into it, so that you hear the words simply as sounds minus their meanings. But either way, there is in poetry a distinction between the meaning of the words as words and the performance of the words as sounds. There is a surplus physicality of sound which you can identify separately from the meaning. And even in poetry, the most nearly musical of all the verbal arts, the musicality of the sound can work its effect only in conjunction with formal verbal meanings. <clears throat> But in certain kinds of pure music, you cannot make any such distinction at all, nor ought you to try. A string quartet has no verbal meaning at all. What you hear is what you get, meaning as sound, sound as meaning. In such music, there is no surplus either of physicality over and above the signifying sounds themselves, or of signification over and above those sounds and they're structuring in rhythm and pitch and melody and harmony. So you could say that music is, like the Cheshire cat, all smile and no cat, because the matter has disappeared into the meaning 
and the meaning has disappeared into the matter. Music is matter entirely alive with meaning, the most bodily and at the same time the most formal of human communications. And that's why I suggested that if you were Thomas, you might say, though of course he didn't say it, that music is the most rational of human activities, for in music, physicality and meaning, body and language, have become perfectly identified. Music is sound and fury signifying nothing that the sound and fury themselves do not signify. Music is all body, but precisely as language, as communication. It is body entirely transparent to meaning. It is animality in its most transparent form as rationality. And that was step four. And now that I've got Thomas to take us about as far as is possible from what we might have thought he meant when I first used the word rational in this lecture, I can begin to explain what might truly be at stake when he talks about a rational knowledge of God. There's a fifth important step needed yet, but on the way, could I point you in the right direction by hazarding a speculation? It is that the nearest you can get to a sort of spontaneous and demotic natural theology, to a sort of pre-theological anticipation of theology, is in poetry and in music, but especially in music. And if this is so, perhaps it's because of those paradoxical conjunctions of music's being closest to us in its intense physicality, and yet wholly open as it's to its, its significance, so very indeterminate, so lacking in particular reference, so very formal. And for that reason, it opens up spaces of experience beyond our particularity, beyond our confined individualities. Ancients, Pythagoras, Boethius, did not think, as we do now, of some music as sacred and some secular. They thought music was sacred as such. And whatever the reasons of the ancients, I think we moderns too intuitively experience in music a natural capacity for the transcendent. <coughs> we can see it as a sort of natural theurgy. And if that's so, it would appear to have to do with the fact that music's very impersonality and otherness is what allows for such free, spontaneous and utterly personal response. To paraphrase Nietzsche, music is all feeling, all sadness and joy, but as subjectively and objectively unhooked. Subjectively unhooked because it's no one's sadness or joy, and objectively unhooked because its sadness or joy is not about anything in particular, and so it can be feeling as anyone's, feeling which is absolutely selfless and absolutely objectless, so it can be absolutely yours as well as absolutely mine, but always as transcending us both, moving experience into a free space, a space rather free of the constative. Music, therefore, is communication absolutely free of judgment, free of Thomas's componendo et dividendo, and so at once rational and wholly free of rationality in that minimal sense that I earlier described. And perhaps that is why music is the most commonly experienced form of what the medievals called <coughs> an excessus, 
or in Greek, ecstasis, or in English, simply taking leave of your senses. It is rationality escaping from itself, but, and here's the paradox, in music, by the most sensual, most bodily, and so rational of means. Which brings us to step five. And this is that music is, as I put it, prototypically Eucharistic. And maybe by now you've caught hold of the connective tissue of thoughts, the formal similarity of thought structure. For on Thomas's account, in the Eucharist is brought to the absolute limit possible before our resurrection, that same conjunction of absolute bodiliness and absolute transparency of meaning. For the Eucharist is communication of the word, which is all body, and it is a body which has become all communication, all word, all sign, an identity of message and medium. Or, and this is just another way Thomas has of putting the same, in the Eucharist there is nothing left of the bread and wine's materiality, but only their character as signs. All smile and no cat again. For the cat has become all smile, as one might want Tom, with Thomas inelegantly to say, the cat has been thus entirely transubstantiated into its expression. For these are signs which now make real a presence of Christ's body, but in such a way as to push to the very limits any force we can lay hold on for the words real and presence. And then we have to add, and beyond such limits, for this is a bodily presence which, is presence which escapes from itself, it is a presence which escapes from the particularities of space, space and time, which bodilies naturally inhabit. <clears throat> and we should note in this connection something that once, say in the 16th century, got lost from Catholic Eucharistic theology probably in reaction to a correspondingly one-sided Zwinglian emphasis upon it, namely that the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is in Thomas also a doctrine of the real absence. A good theology of Eucharistic presence needs both if we're to capture the force of the word real here, and we find both in Thomas. On the one hand, then, we might say that it is in his teaching on the Eucharist that we find Thomas's last word on ontology about what most really exists. <clears throat> that ontology tells us that his paradigm of the real is the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, a bodily presence which is more real, not less, than the presence of Jesus to the disciples before his resurrection. For in his natural body, Jesus could be present only through the particularities of this space and this time his meaning mediated through the opacity of the material, as we might say, through the obscuring information that he was just another Nazarene, and we all know about them, don't we? So, we might say that before his resurrection, Jesus was all poetry, whereas now, as raised, is pure music, communication achieved by the body's total transparency to its meaning. For now, in the Eucharist, Jesus has a bodily presence, which is total communication, all word, but just for that, the more intensely bodily, not less. So, on the one hand, no body could be more present nor more bodily than Christ's body as present in the Eucharist. 
for nobody could be more purely language, more purely word. But if that is so, then on the other hand, it is a word which is not only intensely animal, most bodily, it is also a word which is ultimately beyond all understanding. For its intrinsic transparency of meaning must remain opaquely mysterious to us because our bodies are opaque receivers of the mystery, are not themselves totally communicative, for our bodies, like formal speech, retain a surplus of unmeaningful materiality over and above their capacities for meaning. It is our bodies, not Jesus' body, which gets in, get in the way of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And that is because, unlike Jesus' body, ours are not yet raised. Jesus' body is wholly present to us because his is raised, but it is also experienced in our bodies as absence because in our present historical contingency, ours are not. Hence, what the Eucharist makes real is both the now of presence and the not yet of absence. And it is just that conjunction of presence and absence which is made real. For the Eucharistic presence is caught up in an eschatological and not a merely linear temporality. Thomas's ontology, then, his account of the real, is essentially sacramental, because essentially eschatological, ascribing in the body, in its present condition, an openness to a future which is not yet and cannot yet be. The Eucharist is, then, an uncompleted eschatology realized as bodily exchange. The bread and wine become that body, a body which is all communication, the flesh made most perfectly to be word, future gloriae nobis pinius dator, as Thomas says in one of his antiphons for the feast of Corpus Christi, a pledge given to us of future glory. It is in all these respects that music both shows us what is central to reason, and in doing so shows how reason is prototypically Eucharistic. At any rate, we could mean that much by reason, if we did not simply abase ourselves before the altar of that recent intellectual history which has reduced reason to ratiocination, to, to its minimal sense, as logic. If music is a kind of spontaneous natural theology, it is because it is a kind of spontaneous natural eschatology. Which is why it is, I think, that all great music, it doesn't matter whether in mood it is sad or happy, is in a certain way, which is characteristic of it as music, always sad. Music always strikes chords, we might say, because music is the lacrimae rerum, the world's tears, its recollection of what cannot yet be. At any rate, whether it is that weird and terrible trio of the Schubert string quintet, or the hushed moment of reconciliation of the finale of the marriage of Figaro, Whichever it is, at one end or the other of the emotional spectrum, or wherever between, all music makes you cry, and you're not a proper animal if you don't. And I think it does so because music is, in a way, a shadow cast onto human sensibility of that eschatological temporality of the Eucharist. The sadness of music is a sort of sensual nostalgia for what one has caught some glimpse of but cannot yet possess, it is, as it were, a premonition of a premonition. It is a shadow of the Augustinian anamnesis, 
a depth dug into memory, scoring it with a sort of hope made real, but also as loss and as absence, made present, but as yet to be real, it is our homeland glimpsed, but as yet from a distance. But if that is what is meant by reason in its maximal, as also in its most fundamental sense, that is, it is our animality, as being itself the quasi-sacramental bearer of that self-escaping significance, then we take our final step to the conclusion, namely that that too is the shape which must, must be possessed by that very particular exercise of reason, which I've been trying so hard till now to get you not to reduce reason to, that minimal sense, which consists in ratiocination, in inference, in argument and in proof. Reason for Thomas is always bound to end up with God, so why not that minimal form of it which is ratiocination too? For reason, in the sense of reasoning, gives names to things. It names all that which music, through its very indeterminacy, its refusal of any constitutive character, can gesture towards but does not and cannot name because naming is precisely what music is the refusal to do. But if reason in this form as reasoning names, it has to do that because that is just what it does. It does that naming also in the shadow of music's inarticulateness and indeterminacy, in the shadow of its apophaticism. For if, as Thomas says, reason ever dares utter the name God, it may do so only as that which finally defeats its powers. Naming God is reason's supreme achievement, but only insofar as doing so, it knows that what it so names escapes from under the naming, dodges all the arrows of naming that reason can fire at it. And that, as Thomas says, is quod omnes decunt deum. For when we name God, we have stretched naming out to the end of its tether until the tether snaps. Indeed, it is the snapping of reason's tether that is its primitive theological moment. In God, reason reaches the point of collapse because overweighted with significance, it is word oversaturated. And now when Thomas says this omnes, this all, I think we can, with greater confidence, agree on that all. Christians, Muslims and Jews, but just as well those atheists it would be worthwhile having around to do their denying, engaging through their oppositio in an eadem scientia. I have no intention of taking you through, still less of defending in point of their soundness, those famous and much derided five ways of Thomas Aquinas. I simply ask you to note the argument strategy by which they work, for it has, as music has, the shape of the sacramental, the form of the body's transparency to the mystery we call God. It's the same ontology at work. It is only through our body's intimacy to the world's materiality, to the way things move, to the way one thing depends on another, to the way things come into existence and pass out of it, that we achieve that glimpse of the world's ultimate significance, which is the unknowable mystery of God. And herein is the paradox of our human rationality, 
of which I say music is a sort of sign or anticipation. When in the first part, question 2, article 3 of the Summa Theologiae, Thomas tells us that we can, by these five ploys of inference, prove the existence of God, he notes immediately afterward in question 3 that what proves God to exist also proves that as of God, we've finally lost our grip on the meaning of the word exist itself. So that in proving God to exist, we push reason to the point of absolute exhaustion. And so it is that by means of rational inference, we do in a merely speculative way what the Eucharist draws us into the very life of. Reason gets you to where unnameable mystery begins, but stands on this side of it, gesturing towards what it cannot know, and there it is self-emptied, kinotically as we might say, it is stunned into a sort of babble at the shock of its final defeat. This reduction to babble, by the way, being what is otherwise called theology. <clears throat> But by the Eucharist, we're drawn into that same mystery as into our very carnal life, so that we live by the mystery, we eat it. Though the mystery is no more comprehensible, Thomas says, for being eaten than it is for being thought. For he tells us that we do not resolve the mystery of faith as if, for reason, it was some insoluble conundrum to which faith, on the other hand, held the solution. We do not know what God is, I quote, even by the revelation of grace. By grace, we are indeed truly made one with God, so as to share in the divine life, but as to one who is unknown to us, quasi e ignoto coniungamo. So, there you have it. That, I think, is how animals know God, whether by reason or by faith, at any rate, according to Thomas. Put it its simplest, his position is formally that of the Vatican decree, that there are grounds of faith for affirming reason's autonomy, for affirming that it can, of its own resources, know God, for its shape is on its own terms inherently sacramental. Reading Thomas alerts us not to confuse this baby of reason with the bathwater of rationalism. If unalerted you do confuse them, you will of course have all sorts of unnecessary and theologically damaging zero-sum problems, trading off faith and reason against one another. At any rate, that is what Thomas seems to say, and so do I. Well then, I took the plunge into reason's icy waters, and you will have to admit, bravely, or perhaps rashly enough, and I found them not to be quite so chilly after all. But now that I've done my bit, the question passes over to you. Bobbing about in those 13th century waters, as I have been for the last 50 minutes or so, I'll leave it to you to decide. Was I waving or was I drowning? Thank you. So I guess I'm wondering, how, why is it one thing rather than another? You know, why is it this kind of music rather than that kind of music? And I think, so, uh, I think related to that is yeah. a question. Um, yeah. Is this consistent or inconsistent with a thought like you get in Aristotle and I think Plato as well, that even nonverbal music is mimetic? 
of, of character, uh, of action, of feeling? Is that, is that the kind of thing you have in mind? No, it, it's, it, that is precisely the sort of thing I don't have in mind, that it's mimetic, because it seems to me that that makes the Kantian move, which takes, um, well, you know, in the critique of judgment, if you, if you remember, um, Kant is attempting to classify the arts. Music comes at the bottom because it's the one which least well approximates to the paradigm at the top, which is verbal expression. So the constative is, for Kant, paradigmatic of meaning. Now, what I had in mind was a sort of Nietzschean reversal of this, which is to think of formal speech, the constative, the truth-bearing proposition, as a kind of extension from something more fundamental and primitive than it, which is music. Now, if in response to the first, uh, uh, sorry, and then, then to continue, in respect of the, 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 the notion of music as mimetic, the trouble with that, it seems to me, is that it's, it's, it's sort of in the same way as in Kant, is an attempt to get music to bear meaning only insofar as it approximates to the truth-bearing character of formal speech. Do you see what I mean? So what is it in um, the music that is extended? I mean, if you're yeah. seeing music, uh, yeah. This, yeah. this formal thing as an extension of yeah. something in music, what's that thing that has meaning in the music if it's not a mimesis, it's not, yeah. it's totally indeterminate, it's, or it's yeah. significantly yeah. indeterminate, there's no reference. How do we understand it as an extension? I, uh, if you're asking me, what's your theory of meaning in music, then I can tell you what it is, but I'm not myself terribly interested in whether I do or don't have a, a particular account of meaning in music. What I think I do need to rely on is the proposition that music is meaning-bearing. Right? It's meaningful communication. And I mean, uh, I think in only, the, only need a most minimal sense for that. Namely, that um, uh, it's a form of communication. Right? Music is a form of communication. It actually transacts meaning between human beings. Now, what does it transact? Well, one theory of meaning, which I happen, uh, of musical meaning, which I happen to be fairly partial to, is that it is essentially a form of expressive meaning. That if you want an analogy for it, it approximates to cheering at a football match. Right. Now, that's not constitutive speech. I mean, it may consist in that. I mean, I, I don't know how American football, it strikes me as people at American football matches are polite in a way in which one is not accustomed to at soccer matches in the UK, which is what I have experience of, where constative utterances are delivered with considerable frequency and in rather plain speech, right? concerning the nature of the opposed team. Right? Um, however, um, the, the sort of noise of cheering, or, or the, uh, and I think this is fairly characteristic, isn't it, uh, uh, certainly of soccer um, audiences, is that they sing. Right? They support by means of singing. Now, to deny that's a form of communication, would it seem to me, you know, between human beings, that's to say between embodied animals, yeah, would be to me very, very strange. 
That it is very, very controversial what account of meaning you give, where the meaning in question is not constative, where it's not truth-bearing, where you're not actually making judgments, true or false. Uh, it, it, it is, it's unsurprising that we've got problems about how to account for that. But I'm not particularly interested in what theory of music you give. I mean, read any book about the theory of music and you'll find, what, six chapters on different accounts of musical meaning. But they're all accounts of musical meaning. Because all of them take it for granted that music is a, a way in which human beings transact communications between one another. And I don't happen to fancy the mimetic view, but an expression, yeah, music has expression of emotion. I'm, I think I'm perfectly prepared to say that, though there are many who doubt that. But where, yeah. and where emotion is meant to have a kind of non-cognitive or non-conceptual spin. I mean, it's, I guess that's sort of what I'm wondering. Like, in saying it's non-verbal, it's not re referring to things, are we... Are we you see, what you need is a whole shift of epistemology. When you say non-cognitive, that's the supposed notion of the cognitive, which is tied in with the constative. Well, it's just like conceptual. Does it have conceptual content? Yeah, I think it can. Though, I mean, there's a famous story about the English musical editor who went to visit Beethoven once, about 1814, and wanted to publish because he was unusually honest and didn't want a pirate, um, the Third Symphony, the E-flat Eroica Symphony. And he asked Beethoven what was the meaning of the Eroica Symphony. Beethoven threw him down the stairs in disgust that you should ask such an ignorant question. The meaning is the Eroica Symphony. There isn't the Eroica Symphony plus meaning of which you could give a verbal account. Why would you bother composing if you could replace the Eroica Symphony with some verbal equivalent to it? And yet to deny it has meaning is to adopt, it seems to me, an excessively narrow conception of what counts as meaning and transaction. And I think if you do, you're in trouble with your theology of the Eucharist. How does the Eucharist signify? Signifies the way a kiss signifies. I mean, in fact, that would be a pretty, you know, there's quite a nice sort of sloppy sentimental theology, I suppose, of the Eucharist's kiss. Yeah? Um, there is actually a very good medieval theology of the incarnation as kiss, by the way. It, it, it derives from commenting on, on the first verse of the Song of Songs, May he kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. This is the human race's desire for... For, for, for the incarnation. But, uh, <clears throat> uh, Alan of Lille does that very, very nicely. But um, uh, you, you could do it that way. But I, I do, do think that the, the, the way in which a kiss is somehow or other... Look, if you can't kiss, you can't speak, right? And only animals that can speak can kiss, right? They're not the same thing, and yet they're part of the same package of bodies which communicate. You, if you can understand the one, then you can understand how the other works. But to have an understanding of the one which excludes the other as being non-meaningful something or other. No, I agree with that. Yeah. It's what yeah. I'm trying to understand is how they're part of that same package, other than just yeah. using the yeah. word meaning. Well, Right. So yeah, okay, okay. I mean, I, 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 I agree with you. It's a problem there. Just we said I'm meaning. not sure you can go much further than that. Yeah. That is just what bodies are about. What you mean by a human body is precisely the sort of body which can transact by means of kisses. And for that matter, whatever it is that enables a kiss to signify whatever kisses signify, 
is what makes it possible for these curious garbled English sounding sounds coming out of my mouth to amount to significant phrases. Because there's no difference in the problem there is about how the, the, the meeting of lips signifies what it signifies and the sounds which I'm uttering now signify what they signify. As I said, if you've got a problem about how meaning gets into matter in the first place, you've got a problem equally about how a kiss signifies, can signify what a kiss signifies, and a problem with how my explanation of how a kiss can signify in the form of the word sounds I'm uttering now actually amount to significant noise. And I think that's the same problem as you've got about music. Music amounts to significant noise. Well. Some of it doesn't sound much as if it does. And the difference between cacophony and music is, of course, important. But there are people like Stravinsky have written wonderfully about the difference between cacophony and music and how to tell the difference. And all that has to do with, well, I mean, it, all that sort of area of question, indeed, your very question makes sense, if and only if music signifies in some kind of way. And if that's the case, then let's not just limit signification to whatever it is that verbal utterance consists in by way of signification. Because then we're going to have insoluble problems. I mean, we've then decided that we can't solve the problem of how music signifies for the very reason that it lacks that which is crucial to how words signify, namely through componendo et dividendo, judgments which have truth values, truth-bearing utterances. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in, in uh, how you related the Eucharist to music, yeah. but uh, what occurred to me when I was listening to you was uh, the Augustinian definition of a sacrament. Yeah. Uh, a word is added to the element and yeah. it becomes a sacrament. Yeah. So um, how I phrase this is, um, does Christ communicate himself by means of the materiality of the Eucharistic elements, or uh, does he need the words um, that come in the institution narrative um, to communicate his meaning. And if this is the case, then we're no longer in the realm of uh, poetry and music, but um, you know, yeah. in another realm. Yeah. So yeah. I wonder if you could comment yeah. on the, that. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 my analogy will work only up to a point. Uh, it's clear that the Eucharist can signify what it does only in the context of a narrative, clearly. Yeah, uh, and you need the whole Christian narrative to get it going in the first place. Absolutely right. And I only sort of gesture towards that without really confronting that issue in the form in which you put it to me. Um, uh, in um, uh, <clears throat> uh, in talking about the, the the eschatological character of it, I mean that eschatological character of it. You know, the eschatology is about how as I understand it at any rate, it is about how narrative can relate past, present and future in that Augustinian kind of way. The word can affect what it signifies only insofar as its signification is connected up with a whole narrative within which it can signify that way. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, absolutely right. I think it's just that one writes a paper and immediately one's written it, one thinks, well, that paper will only work if I write the next one. And that's how we academics end up writing these endless books. And they get longer and longer. And one thing I haven't learned from 
Bernie's how to write long books. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's right, because one thing leads to another, and the whole thing does connect up. Yeah, you need a narrative theology or theology of narrative to get the thing going. Indeed, I mean, that's what Christian theology is essentially about a story within which certain things, which otherwise could make no sense at all, make sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, I missed the first 10 minutes, so please uh, excuse me. Oh, they were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, what I understood, in part of what I understood from your uh, lecture today is an attempt to recapture a richer understanding of reason and what a mm. rational animal means. Sure. Um, but in listening to it and reflecting on it, I kind of end up having a difficult time distinguishing between now the category of faith mm. and the category of reason yeah. at all. Mm. Because the kinds of language about reason as mm. music, mm. as feeling, mm. as attempt to communicate, transcend, mm. all of these kinds of ways of reconceptualizing reason, yeah. um, to me, are kind of an articulation of what many people mean by faith. Yeah. Yeah. So could you speak yeah. to how these categories now are different mm. in the light of what you've said? As if we're talking about, uh, I mean, to put it in Thomas's terms, which is where I'd rather stay for the moment rather than, you know, bigger picture. Um, it's fairly clear that for him, reason can only operate within the context of a kind of rational faith anyway. A huge amount of what we rationally access, we take on faith in the sense that we trust the authority of others of the human community and you know that as it were the traditions and build up of knowledge which has been acquired but we haven't acquired it yeah. we, we've acquired it as it were by by absorbing it from others who have been uh, acquired it um yeah i mean reason can only operate on the basis of premises which are themselves not rationally acquired yeah. and I think that that is hugely important. That reason can self-transcend, yeah? um, brings one closer to something like Christian faith, theological virtue of faith. Yeah? And I'm not sorry about that. I mean, I'm not sorry if, if we start thinking about reasons in ways which almost inevitably lead us to need to talk about faith as a theological virtue, as something which is given to us. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't be sorry if that led to a certain kind of confusion of over-sharp lines of demarcation. And the thing about lines of demarcation is that the sharpest you can get are the polarized ones. And those who are heavily invested, for some reason or other, which has to do with, I think, Kantian notions that you know, you, you, you've got to curtail the claims of reason in order to leave room for those of faith. The very spatial metaphor of territories, which that implies, will work only if you suppose that there's a continuum such that any part of it which is occupied by faith, reason is excluded from, and vice versa. And that seems to me to be that sort of either-or notion of reason and faith, which, well, you just won't be able to work out the kind of paper I was working out on that basis. So, yeah, I am moving away from a very, very sharp way of, and certainly that 
form of sharpness that consists in polarization, in disjunction between reason and faith. Yeah, I am. Uh, on the other hand, uh, and uh, let me add one other thing which further confuses the thing. Reason is a gift. So it's not a distinction between reason and faith that, 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 that reason is somehow natural and faith is a gift. Because our natures are gifts. That we are such and such is a gift. Our existence is a gift. Yeah? So giftedness won't get you to faith rather than anything else. Well, everything's a gift. That's a, simply the doctrine of creation. Yeah? So tell me about how you want to make the distinction, and then I'll see whether I do or don't agree with you. In the meantime, I like the fuzziness, frankly. And it's not reductive. I don't believe, as I said at the end of the paper, reason in a way, I mean, I did put it quite disjunctively, actually. I said, look, reason can only stand on one side of this mystery, gesturing towards it. But what it can't do, reason can't actually enjoy the life that it gestures towards. That is a pure gift which does not belong to nature, does not belong to reason's capacity, is not something that reason could even imagine being possible. I use the word reason in connection with imagination because I mean it, that imagination is part of the rational apparatus of a, of a human being. But anyway, you um, uh, can't imagine that we could actually eat God. That's shocking. Unbelievable. That, that our business of eating could be the most important and central way in which the mystery, the unutterable mystery of the Creator could be present among us when we eat together. Now, I mean, there's no way you can work that through on any analogy from music or anything else. Yeah? So, yeah, I was quite sharp about the distinction in the end. Reason, however, can point to that unutterable mystery which it cannot itself, as it were, live by the life of. It can only live by its own animal life, but its animality cannot, by its own resources, become that communication which, which the Eucharist is. So, yeah, there is a distinction, but I, 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 I don't want to start with distinctions. I, I, starting off the enterprise of theology, we say, well, look, um, if you're into reason, there's another department called philosophy. Go over there right, and do that. Here we do faith. Well, it just doesn't work. It's not true anyway. It's not a true account of what actually happens in the Divinity School or Theology Department. Reason is being used all over the place. But if you're not going to be upfront about the fact that, you know, reason is, is how animals respond to the gift of revelation. Right? And they're going to do that if animal things are the means through which the gift is given. Eating music or whatever. Uh, do, do, do you see? S sorry, I, I, I'm now meandering.